listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number four, four, six. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Station on this blustery autumnal day, October 2017. Apologies for not getting a podcast out in the last couple of weeks, but I've had my hands full sorting out the clearance sale we've had going on on Backpacking Light. In my previous podcast, I think I mentioned that should you meet any interesting people during your wanderings, to let me know. Well, one faithful listener from Cornwall, John Hee, dropped me a line suggesting I speak with today's guest, who he had engaged in a fascinating conversation as she passed by on the way to Land's End. Now, you know we like to support self-powered travel on this podcast. The more interesting, the better. And I've said many times before, there are lots of normal people out there doing some inspiring things. And certainly, Hannah Simpson is one of them. So let me paint a picture for you. Let's say that one day you decide to do a self-powered, unsupported trip. Maybe mm, the length of the UK. Well, there's nothing too unusual about that. Say you want to wild camp, probably for the first time en route. Mm, Again, exciting, adventurous stuff, but not that unusual. Ultralight is your method of style of travel. So no cooker, just the very basics, the real basics, all within a 30-litre pack. Hmm, right, okay, that's starting to get interesting. You can't afford much kit, so you literally just borrow any old gear, bivvy bags, etc. from family members and pick up the rest as best you can. Well, that's pretty trusting. You decide to do it for charity. Excellent, sounds good. And finally, just to make it really, really challenging, you decide to do it on a unicycle. So I would like to introduce you to 20-year-old Hannah Simpson, who has just ridden 734 and a half miles in 28 days on a unicycle. All photos and more can be found on the Outdoor Station podcast page. I suppose I should start from um, how I got into unicycling, which was um, seven years ago. I was 13 and my mum was, uh, I was with my mum walking through, walking around London and we saw this guy on a great big tall, I don't know, eight foot, 10 foot giraffe unicycle. So um, as it was almost Christmas, I was sort of looking at the unicycle and mum and sort of trying to hint. <laughs> Um, so uh, at Christmas, sure enough, my, my little 20-inch first unicycle appeared under the tree. Um, and I was on it every moment of the day that I could be for the next um, two weeks. Um, I guess sort of, yeah, going down the driveway on the ice like my dad um, in two days. And, yeah, it was, uh, it was two weeks before um, I'd sort of mastered going on indefinitely. But ever since then, it's always been... St- <laughs> an idea in my head to do to do you know ridiculous trips on this strange mode of transport so um, it was actually two years ago um that i actually started thinking about doing a big long trip the idea was 
uh, initially Land's End to John O'Groats or actually the other way around. I wanted to get Scotland over with um, because I'd been um, unicycling for, um, to work, to college, um, and I'd performed in a youth circus. So um, nothing was ridiculous enough anymore. And I decided I needed to do a long-distance trip. So I did a few little bits like um, taking my tent away and finding a campsite for the night and unicycling off. Um, the most I ever did being sort of 27 miles in a day. So eventually after those two years, um, having, you know, sort of traveled around the world, um, I finally got out the, the time, the weather, uh, funds and motivation to actually set off on this trip. Okay, well, I, I'm a, I have to say I have tried a unicycle myself, oh, yes. and um, I would say that I was absolutely terrible at it and didn't stick at it for more than uh, <laughs> half a day uh, amidst frustration and things. So I'm full of admiration <laughs> that you, you stuck at it, particularly through Christmas time and winter, and uh, managed to, to capture uh, the skills required, which is many-fold. I mean, there's all sorts of things that I want to ask you about unicycling and certainly unicycling, you know, to and from work or, or whatever. But I'd yeah. like to just get back to this trip um, at the moment, really. D tell me how the trip came about. OK, well, the trip I've just done, um, I've, I've unicycled from the top to the bottom of England. So the most northern point, uh, just five miles or so above uh, Berwick-upon-Tweed on the Scottish border to Land's End, right at the bottom. Um it was 734 and a half miles, um, and I did it in 28 days. Um, it came about, um, I've, I got into long-distance unicycling about maybe three or four years ago. So I'd always done little, uh, little sort of one- or two-day trips to and from somewhere in camping. But, and it was, it was always great fun, but it always ended too soon. So um, after... Yeah, I read, I've joined a unicycling forum and read about other people's long-distance trips and, you know, taking tents or having a caravan supporting them or something. Um, I, I became quite jealous. <laughs> and in planning this trip or starting to think about it, I came across um, a guy called Ed Pratt, who is actually currently unicycling around the world. He started, I think, two and a half years ago-ish. Um, so he he is a great inspiration. I always think about him when I'm going through. Oh, well, I was always thinking about him when I was going through a hard time on my own trip. Like if he can unicycle around the world, I can do <laughs> just England. And you, you you chose to do this trip in in aid of charity as well, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes. So I am. Um, I was working for the Epsom Manual Food Bank um, for actually a couple of years volunteering first then working and I got to see firsthand uh, what an awesome job they do so um, when I was doing this trip it seemed a bit crazy to do it without raising money for something and they're you know they're lovely people it's a love it's an awesome cause so I thought why not so just as as an aside is the charity page still live for any donations that people would like to make to help the food bank it is, yeah. Um, I think it's staying uh, live for another three months-ish, three months. Yeah, I think it finished, It sort of closes mid-December-ish. So any donation, don sorry, donations are greatly appreciated. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, hopefully listeners will uh, hear this and um, perhaps uh, contribute a few pounds because it will go a long way at Christmas time, I'm sure. Oh, yes, really, definitely. 
So there seems like this massive jump. Now, I've got in my mind, and I've seen a few of your photographs you sent through to me, as you say, the idea of reducing your pack weight, whether you're walking, cycling, paddling or whatever, is obviously important to my sort of audience. But when you consider you've got a unicycle, you've got even less space to put things. And the fact that you've done this completely self-supported without any support or any backup or anybody coming along with you, I think is a very, very impressive impressive approach. And I'm surely, surely the forum with unicyclists that do long distance cycling must be a very niche audience. I mean, how many people are doing this in the country? Do you know, I really don't have a clue. There's, um, it's actually called unicyclist.com, the forum. So there's unicyclists from all over the world. And I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time reading the posts, but you know, I never looked at statistics like that. So I honestly have no idea. So when did you actually start out then? It was, it was just late August, 17th of August. So nice weather, Okay. beautiful weather for the first two and a half weeks. And were you cycling fast enough to get away from the midges? <laughs> I was, yes. It was really funny when I, because uh, I stayed the night before my trip, I stayed in a hostel in Berwick-upon-Tweed. So uh, the, the day I started, I had to cycle up to the border first, the Scottish border. And it was, I was really amused because the moment I crossed the border, I was hit by this enormous gust of wind. Um, and having never been to Scotland before, all I'd heard was stereotypes. So <laughs> that one was definitely true, I decided. However, I didn't get any midges. <laughs> So, so just for the benefit of the listeners and myself for that matter, because I'm still finding it very hard to visualize how you were actually doing the journey. Did you did you have a rucksack and something strapped to the to the bike frame or what, what physically did you look like if somebody were to pass you on the on the road? I looked like a complete idiot, which is why I turned so many heads. Um, I had, um, so you, you've got the basic unicycle sort of structure. So it's the wheel, and then you've got the post, uh, the seat on top. Um, but for this trip, I needed a little bit of, you know, extra storage space, and I'd quite, I quite wanted some handlebars, so I wasn't sort of flailing my arms around like an octopus the whole time. So I acquired this bar to put across um, just under the seat, so it's got the handlebars sticking out the front, and then um, it's got another sort of T-bar sticking out the back um, on which I sort of wrapped around um, my tent, uh, well, bivy bag, tent, um, sleeping bag, and sleeping mat. So that wrapped around the T-bar on the back, strapped it up with some, you know, some straps. <laughs> and then on the front, as, as well as the handlebars at the front, I had... Um, on the post sticking out, I had a little little waterproof pouch to put my phone in with a see-through front so I could use, still use my uh, phone on my GPS in the rain. And so it was that. And then I had my backpack on my back as well, yeah. I needed extra space for, you know, clothes, food, and uh, what few toiletries I had with me as well as a great big spare inner tube, which is absolutely enormous for a 36-inch wheel. And so, yeah. And are we talking the route that you took? Did you, was it all on road or did you, uh, you know, take a route that had some off-road as well? Yeah, it wasn't all on road. Um, I'd followed a lot of the national cycle routes, um, national cycle networks, Sustrans routes. So that takes you on little quiet roads and then also um, along cycle paths, footpaths and 
uh, there were even some really strange parts going through fields where I wasn't quite sure if I'd completely lost the path or not once I started, you know, heading through a ton of stinging nettles. But um, there were a couple of bigger roads that I took as well, which were a little bit scary. So I ended up um, getting off to walk a few, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, <laughs> a few yards to get <laughs> just to get out the way of the cars. I mean, obviously, the, and what instantly comes to my mind, as I'm sure to people who are listening to this, is the safety angle. If you know, unicycles are not known to to be stable, as it were. And if you're on an A road and there are lorries hurtling past you at 60 miles an hour or whatever, uh, it can't be particularly easy. So from a safety point of view, did you like have a reflective jacket on and loads of flashing lights? Or, or how, how did you, yeah, what, what were you wearing? Um, so I had a great big uh, reflective high-vis uh, jacket that were all the time, pretty much all the time. And uh, then there were, I had little slap bands to put on my wrists and ankles. Uh, bright yellow ones then i had reflectors on both the front and the back of the unicycle so so i felt more safe and probably hopefully was more safe i didn't have any flashing lights um but then i wasn't going on in any roads where lorries were hurtling past me at 60 miles per hour i mean i did i think the worst i went on was a, an a road down south just for a little while okay. so mostly the traffic wasn't too bad I think probably the safety angle must be the first thing that, that have shot into your parents' minds when when you mentioned the fact that you might just happen to be doing this. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, I've done dangerous things all my life and scared them half to death, probably. But they've they've put up with it very very well, actually. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Now, the the other thing that I understand from from yourself is that you were wild camping virtually the the whole route. I was wild, wild camping. Um, it wasn't the entire route because obviously having such a weird mode of transport, a lot of people stop and talk to you, um, whether you like it or not, actually. <laughs> um, so I was offered a, a bed a spare in a spare room several times. So I took offers. I took people up on their offers. I think I slept in beds about the third of my journey and then the rest I was camping. And were these random people that just sort of spoke to you as you were going along? Yeah. Everyone's so nice, especially up north. I was amazed at the amount of people that I got into conversation with and who offered me beds and food and showers. It was all amazing. Oh, that's really good. That's good to hear. So did you, did you when you set out, did you say, right, I'm going to do, I don't know, 25, 30 miles a day relentlessly and check your GPS and, and only stop when you did that? Or did you sort of go, well, I'll just go with the flow and if I find a hedge to sleep under, I'll do that? Yeah, it was pretty much the letter. Um, I thought, because I was doing about 20 miles a day when I was training beforehand, um, so I thought, well, okay, we'll think about 20 miles when we start out every day. But then if you don't make it, something happens, or if I'm just fed up and grumpy, then I'll find a hedge or, you know, whatever I'll find. <laughs> so it was pretty flexible. But towards the end, um, when I once I'd started and having sort of getting an average of 30 miles or over 30 miles then it was more sort of okay you can't stop until you've done at least 30 it would be horrible <laughs> <laughs> using a unicycle is obviously a completely different thing to a standard bicycle when it, when it comes to terrain did you have to plan in great detail using i don't know google earth or whatever the actual sort of terrain that you were crossing the climbs the drops and that type of thing I did not, no. I didn't actually plan the route thoroughly before I left. All I did um, was put into Google Maps <laughs> um, Land's End and the and actually a 
Berwick upon Tweed, so that I knew the rough route that it recommended I took with, uh, you know, on a bicycle if I were on a bicycle. And then just I just took it day by day. I'd look at sort of thirty miles or so um, every night, um, and if it took me on some stupid roads or if I saw a shortcut that I could take, then I would alter it a bit. And then, yeah, the next day I would I would do my 30 miles or however much it was and plan the next 30 miles in my bivy bag that next night. On any trip that anyone does that's sort of more than a week or so, a couple of weeks in particular, you start to notice changes in yourself, in your body, in your mental attitude and your fitness and that sort of thing. Now, as you were predominantly, obviously, leg-based as regards to the exercise and movement you were doing, although there must be an awful lot of torso muscles used as well, how did you feel you changed yourself in, in sort of from a physical point of view? As you say, you're obviously clocking in 30 miles plus by the time you got towards the end. Uh, but apart from sort of the distances, do you feel that you changed quite dramatically in yourself? Yes. Yes, I did, actually. <laughs> it was really weird watching these strange new lumps appearing on my legs. <laughs> there was one point, it was actually quite near the beginning, that I came off the unicycle, um, resulting in a rather nasty bump on my leg, which you'll pro- we'll probably talk about later. But um, when, as I saw these new muscles forming on my legs initially when I was looking on that side I thought it must be something to do with the swelling from that cut (laughs) so it was only when I looked over to the other leg and saw the same lumps appearing that I thought this is strange my legs look different to normal (laughs) and and what about the rest of the body did you notice anything particularly about your torso or or your arm muscles and that sort of stuff no nothing to do with arm muscles um I felt I felt my torso getting stronger but not really physically, nothing apart from my legs, except, you know, obviously I turned a bit browner <laughs> on my arms. I take it you were just wish like wearing a short and a, a T-shirt for most of the time then? Yeah, that's right. The Outdoors Station is a free media entertainment service dedicated to the self-powered outdoors enthusiast. And just explain, if you would, as again, I, you know, I've got an idea of what's involved, but a lot of people listening to this are just trying to grasp it, I'm sure, is that when you're sitting on a unicycle, obviously the, the balancing and the muscular parts going on all the time, but are you sitting fairly erect? Is that, is that the standard sort of position you sit in and you just sort of lean forward to go forward? Is that, is that how the balance works? Well, you have to make, obviously you're only balancing on one wheel as opposed to two. So you have to make sure that all of your weight goes roughly in a straight line right down the middle of the unicycle. So um, you sit up straight, yeah. Um, And then when you're going up a hill, you lean forwards. Well, I leant forwards over my handlebars quite a lot, actually, just to get up the hill. And then when you're going downhill, I um, lean back a little bit. But most of the time you're sitting erect. And from a from a powering point of view, is it a fixed wheel a unicycle, or are, are they like normal cycles? They they run freewheel. No, it's a fixed cycle, uh, meaning I literally did pedal every wheel rotation from the top to the bottom, which is quite cool to think about. But um, you can actually get a special. It's called a Schlumpf Hub. I think the only one that's in that you can buy at the moment, um, which allows you to switch to a, a higher gear, so you can go faster. But you have to buy them separately and they're really, really expensive. So that was never an option for this trip, although it would have been lovely. So with a fixie then, am I, am I right in saying that you didn't have any additional brakes? You had to backpedal to brake? I didn't. 
no brakes. So you just have to control it with your legs. Gosh. And what sort of speeds were you sort of clocking on when you, you got going on this thing? Can you really get going? Um, it depends uh, how cautious you are about uh, well about the speed that you are going because when you come when you come to step off it when you need to get off if you're going fast then you have to kind of do a you have to sort of launch yourself off and run for a little while afterwards um, just to stop yourself safely so I always told myself when I was tempted to go faster that you know if you come off <laughs> if you fall off you're going to get a much bigger injury if you're trying to go 100 miles per hour so normally my speed was probably around eight miles an hour right so like almost a jogging speed i guess yeah that's right Right, okay uh now you mentioned about the rucksack how big a rucksack did you have do you are you aware of the size of the rucksack the rucksack i believe was about 30 liters Okay. Now, you see, obviously, as you're probably aware from the people we've spoken to before on the outdoor station, we we have a lot of interest in how people reduce their kit down and that sort of stuff. So I'm going to talk about kit towards the end. However, I'm just going to ask you to to describe, if you if you could, the first few days, how it felt. Uh, so there you are. You've got your reflective jacket on. You're just leaving the area. Uh, you've got your 30 litre pack. You've got everything strapped to the bike. Uh, I, did you know where you were going to stay that first night, the second night, the third night? How did uh, how did this, the the journey evolve for you when you first started? I had absolutely no idea when I'd where I'd stay. Um, it was always it was always actually quite fun to wake up in the morning and be packing up my um, bivy bag and sort of thinking, oh, I wonder where I'll be tonight. I wonder if I'll be in a bed. I wonder if I'll be in a hedge. I wonder if I'll be in a roundabout. It was it was really exciting not knowing where I was going to be. There must be memorable things that we all go through when we first start a journey. And I suppose in some cases it might be fear or concern or trepidation or the concern about the weather or if you're going to be up to it or if the gear is going to be up to it, that type of thing. But there must have been a whole variety of things going through your mind. And certainly, you know, you're going to be a fairly unique sight on the on the side roads and through the villages and whatever. So the first couple of days, it must have taken a while just to get used to how you were feeling and also how people were reacting to you and how you would react to them reacting to you. Yeah, I mean, having cycled to and from work um, and to and from college, everything, I was I'm very used to um, the fact that I turn a lot of heads. So I was expecting that. And it didn't phase me, especially when I put my dark glasses on, I can sort of zone out and ignore them if it gets annoying. Cycling on and thinking, thinking about, you know, how each day was going to pan out. I did have a little bit of concern at the beginning. I wonder actually if I'm going to be able to find somewhere easily where I can pitch up. So that first night... I did actually pay for a campsite just so that, because I, it was going to rain. So I thought, well, gosh, well, if my bivy bag leaks, then I've got at least some toilets to go and sit in. But at the campsite, I had I had several sort of bits and bobs food-wise that I bought actually before I left home. So I was it was quite nice to think that I had enough food to last me two days if I couldn't find anywhere uh, to buy anything. So um, at the campsite, I met. I met several people who were really interested in my strange trip. So um, I had a lot of conversation and they were it was really encouraging to talk to them, actually. Um, and they ended up donating to Food Bank, which was really nice of them. The first um, week or so, I was basically following the East Coast. 
um, of England. So it was fairly populated. Uh, I was never too far from a shop. So I didn't feel like I, you know, I wasn't going to run out of food or anything. And if I needed to, if I needed help or anything, I get there are always people around and people were really nice and friendly up there. I live sort of around London and when traveling abroad, I've always been thinking, oh, I don't want to go back home. Everyone's so grumpy and never smiling or anything. But going up north completely changed my idea of England's people because everyone is just so smiley and friendly. And I felt so safe up there. Now, you were talking about the, the wild camping and, and the amount of experiences you had. Uh, can I first ask, had you wild camped before you started this trip? I had not. No, I hadn't. But... That's, that's pretty brave. On other trips, I'd always been sort of eyeing up different places and sort of thinking, oh, that would be a nice place to camp if I had a suitable tent. But I never did, so this was quite the experience. Okay, so let, tell, me, tell me through your first wild camp then, because uh, you've got um, a hooped bivvy. I saw a picture of a hooped bivvy, and you obviously got the sleeping gear you mentioned. You, obviously, you couldn't get the bike uh, inside, the, the cycle inside the, the bivvy, so the, I, I wonder what your thoughts were on the security of that. So uh, t- talk us through your first wild camp then, how you, how you approached it and how you felt about it. <laughs> My first wild camp, <laughs> I didn't actually use my bivy because I was cycling um, along. I'd just gone past Walkworth, so I'd seen the castle. That was really cool. And I was coming out the other side and thinking that I'd better find somewhere to pitch up for the night. Anyway, I was coming into Amble, um, and just before I went, before just before I cycled into Amble, I saw this pillbox on the side of the road, this World War II pillbox. And I thought, ooh, that's very tempting. <laughs> So I waded through the sea of stinging nettles that surrounded it. Um, I gave it a quick sort of sniff check to make sure no one had peed or died in there, and it seemed okay. So I actually ended up just um, picking some sort of long grass, dried-out grass from the side of the road and making a nice little mattress inside the inside the pillbox, put down some bin bags, and then I was just in my sleeping bag that night. Um, my unicycle, I didn't know, yeah, it's quite difficult to lock it up. So I generally tried to find a nice clump of trees that look like no one's ever going to venture into them in a million years. And, you know, just sort of, (laughs) just sort of lock up the wheel and then wind the, uh, wind the lock around as much as I can to make it at least look really safe and like you, you wouldn't be able to get it, get out easily. And how did you sleep that first night? That first night, I did, I didn't sleep too well, um, because I was concerned as to what might join me inside the pillbox during the night. So I actually woke up um, in the middle of the night, um, convinced that I was surrounded by snakes. Um, so I spent a while sort of kicking around in my sleeping bag, trying to get rid of these horrible snakes, and then turned my torch on and realized that I was being an idiot. So I went back to sleep after that, and then woke up again when I thought that I was surrounded by these malicious, tiny, biting bugs, which I also tried to swat out the right way until I turned my torch on and realized again that I was making things up. Um, but I survived. I, I did get some sleep, <laughs> and I'm glad I did sleep in there because that's... That was quite the experience. 
So when you finished each day then, just to sort of try and describe, were you exhausted? Had you really drained your energy? Is it that type of activity that you do feel shattered by the end of the day? Or do you feel, I mean, you're a young, fit person, I know, but, you know, did you feel the day going, well, I could do that again if I wanted to? I did not feel like I could do it again if I wanted to. Um, not most nights anyway. So um, the routine was to sort of get up, wake up at 6.30, 7, and be off by 8. Um, so I just sort of, I'd cycle along. I'd never have any sort of long breaks. I'd just sort of eat as I went along. And then um, depending on how difficult the terrain was and how many wrong turnings and different frustrations there were throughout the day, um, I, I would, you know, I'd stop and camp any any time from sort of 3.30 to 7, actually. So, for example, if I'd had a nice flat day, then the only problems, the only, I'd only feel fatigue sort of in my in my back, where my backpack had been, you know, I mean, I'd been lug, lugging it around all day. So that was actually worse than the pain, than the um, exhaustion in my legs. And that was what limited me, really, along with some, pain discomfort I should say in the um, the nether region because that is where all of the weight is you know carried so everything for my whole weight and everything in the rucksack is all on the saddle so after after a whole day of that it can get quite painful yeah so so chafing as well I should imagine as well actually thinking chafing yeah that's right lots of wonderful mental images going through <laughs> it's still clearing up actually so with the with the unicycle is it like a normal bike you can get saddles which are you know more uh, female friendly or more cushioned or the more whatever uh, or yeah. is it you're pretty stuck with what comes with the the unicycle no you can get different saddles you can play around with what parts what saddles what pedals what crank lengths you know um uh, work best for you so i've actually only got the saddle that came with my unicycle because i was on a bit of a budget and couldn't afford a fancy fancy chris home saddle um which is you know the sort of top of the range what everybody buys if they're doing a fancy trip um but yeah i found mine were fine i mean you'd expect these consequences from a great big long trip like this so i just got on with it really The home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for lovers of the great outdoors everywhere. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions, why not drop us a line directly to our email address, info at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. You were saying about the food, you sort of carried roughly two days worth of food with you just in case, I guess, as a, as a not too sure where you're going to finish and that sort of thing. You haven't, yeah. you haven't mentioned cooking, so I'm, ta- I'm guessing you didn't have a stove or a pan or anything like that. You just kept it to, to whatever you could pick up at, at cafes and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, every extra thing is an extra piece of weight that I really didn't want to be carrying. So I didn't bring any uh, camping stove or pans or anything like that. So my fra- a favorite became sort of pasta salads, the couscous things that you can buy from, you know, Petra's stations or supermarkets. Um, yeah, although one day I ended up, I think I had a couple of scones and a breakfast bar for supper once, which wasn't too pleased with, but there we go. Wow. And then what about water, picking water up as you go along? Did you just ask people for water? Water was pretty easy to come by. I 
I bought some water purification tablets just in case, but really I was, it was just a case of, uh, pubs were my favorite actually for going into because I'd always sort of roll up on my majestic steed and they'd sort of go, what's that? And I'd tell them and then that would, I felt that that was a fair exchange for being allowed to use their toilet. Um, and to, for asking them if they could fill up my water bottles and everyone was always happy to oblige village shops as well. And then I stopped at one house to ask. The uh, going back to the camping issue, um, it sounds so far you told us about the luxurious night stay you have in an old pillbox yes. and uh, bed and breakfasts. I want to hear about some real wild camping. So tell us, okay. t- so tell us about your best wild camping spot and your worst wild camping spot. The one that I enjoyed the most <laughs> was actually um, on a roundabout in the middle of the A419. <laughs> um, so. I had I'd been cycling on the canal for the latter part of the day, so I'd stopped to ask a guy who is operating one of the bridges, you know, the ones that I don't know exactly what they're called, the ones that swing across the canal and then swing off again when a boat needs to come through. Um, but I'd talked to him, um, sort of said, do you know any spots where nobody would mind if I checked my tent out for a night? Um, so he'd given me, he'd sort of said, if you go down, you know, give me directions to it, what he, um, what he said was a leafy area so i went down to this leafy area which happened to be right next to the main road and sort of scouted out a nice spot long grass no no one would ever sort of go down since it was next to a building site um so i'd scouted out my place um my campsite so i tied up i locked up my unicycle for the night and very conveniently there was a starbucks very nearby so i went to sit in there until it got dark um, had a hot chocolate, and as I was sitting there, um, I noticed out the window this very attractive-looking roundabout, and it was very, very tempting. And I watched the flow of the traffic, and sort of to just to figure out when there would be a pause in the traffic, um, um, during which one could potentially sneak onto said roundabout <laughs> with a bivy bag. Um, Sleeping on a roundabout had always been something that my sister and I had jokingly said that I might end up doing. So actually, the thought of actually doing it and being able to text her saying, guess where I'm sleeping tonight was, yes, that was, yeah, that that decided it. So once it got dark, I, um, I put on my dark colored clothes, snuck right around the edge of the road, right next to the hedge with my bag. Um, I waited for the, that pause in the traffic when I sort of darted in (laughs) into the middle of the roundabout, there was a slight worrying moment when um, I couldn't find an opening into the trees because there was a great big clump of trees in the middle of the roundabout. Um, And I saw some head, I could feel some headlights coming up behind me. Um, So I was sort of frantically searching around for an opening in these trees that I could get into, which I did eventually find before the car appeared. Thank goodness. Um, and in the middle of the trees was this beautiful spot, practically made for a wild camper. So, yeah, I threw my stuff down, staked my claim, and actually had to go back again for my bivy bag because I'd left that on my unicycle. I strapped it up to make it look like a well, a man bag, in quotation marks, um, because I was practicing my, my um, <laughs> intimidating-looking man swagger as I was going into the branch <laughs> Because, I mean... Being quite a small female, one can never be too careful when wild camping. So I was sort of swaggering back round to my roundabout, still keeping myself into the hedges, <laughs> my tent. 
started back in again, set up my tent. Plenty of leaves got into my tent, which I've still got as souvenirs, accidental souvenirs. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a very loud night, but I again, I was so exhausted at the end of the day that I slept right through it. I don't remember waking up once through that night, and I woke up at a perfectly respectable time of 6.30 in the morning and opened my tent and watched out the little tr- cracks in the trees, um, all the cars zooming around, completely oblivious to the fact that I was right in the middle. <laughs> so that was your best camping then? Yeah, that was my favourite. Okay, so what was your worst? My worst? Um, my worst one was probably at the end of my longest day. So my record, mileage-wise, was a 43.5-mile day. So I think I'd gone through Taunton, I think, uh, down south, I believe. Um, and I've been trying to get out of the city, find somewhere to wild camp. I eventually found this field down a footpath through some, you know, someone's rubbish dump site over a rail, over some railway tracks um, into this muddy, muddy old field, um, which looked like no one, you know, entered it forever. I found I was camping underneath this these telephone wires, which were crack, crackling all night, um, and a train would hurtle past every now and then, and. The, uh, it was really, it was really spiky. I think there was every every kind of bug that one can find in England was there, <laughs> and all of them wanted to get into my tent. And it was all muddy and squishy, and it rained. It wasn't particularly enjoyable, but again, got through it. I woke up in the morning, um, and the first thing I saw was the shadow of a slug on top of my tent, right above my face. So I watched it for and flicked it off, but um. Yeah, that wasn't a particularly enjoyable night. So you never actually had anybody move you on, as it were? No. Oh, that's never. good. That's good. So talking about equipment then, um, let's just have a quick run through of, of your pack and, and your bivy bag and whatever. I'm not too sure whether you know what products you actually had. Um, the, the, the hooped bivy looked, as you say, looked a sort of a previous generation version. But do you, do you know what sleeping bag you had or what sleeping mat? Okay, so my um, sleeping bag is only a little thin summer type one. I got it from Mountain Warehouse, and it's apparently the recommended temperature in which you could use it as sort of um, 11 to 14 degrees. Um, so it's really just just a sleeping bag. It's not. I ended up having to um, put all of my clothes on every night to keep warm, but it did the job. Okay, and the sleeping mat, was it an, an air type mat or just a piece of foam? The sleeping mat was it was a foam mat which has which has belonged to my parents for probably about twenty years or so. Um, sort of dug it out of the garage and um, after obtaining permission, actually cut it down. So it was this tiny little, tiny little, probably maybe uh, one by three feet. Mm, yeah, just a short just version enough. for your yeah. torso. Yeah, okay. Just a tiny bit, so I've got something to you okay. know rest on. And so you you were wearing your reflective jacket and you had a pair of shorts and, I don't know, presumably trainers or something. Uh, did you sort of go for technical clothing uh, or just a bog-standard T-shirt or crop tops or whatever you have uh, in the unicycle world? <laughs> unicycle world. Um, I went um, I went into good old mountain warehouse and bought um, a couple of cycling tops. Or, you know, just the, the sporty ones, you know, the 
quick dry yeah. things because I knew that I was going to get very wet at some point. Um, so, yeah, they weren't exactly bog standard t-shirts or cycling shirts, but I didn't, I wasn't all serious about it. It was very sort of thrown together last minute. Um, I had a pair of leggings and then a little pair of shorts over the top of those. Then I had my two pairs of cycling shorts. I had two cycling t-shirts, uh, one cotton shirt for night times, um, a little uh, cotton jacket for night times as well. Uh, I had a vest to put underneath everything again at night times. Then I had uh, my reflective jacket and then halfway down, I acquired another jacket that had a hood just another little coat to keep up light showers. And then, yeah, a couple of, three pairs of socks, three pairs of underwear, and that was it. And I presume just a small first aid kit and a, and a, and a um, yeah. cycle pump. A three, tiny little cycle pump wow. first aid kit, which came in handy. Always a bag of almonds in the front of the, of the pack. <laughs> and well, I, I know, having walked with, uh, with many ladies, I know how some people... Uh, prefer not to be far away from a shower more than two days because uh, you know natural cleanliness and wanting to wash the hair and that sort of thing were you Indeed. particularly bothered by that type of thing and you just plodded on and and people avoided you towards the end of the trip or did you manage to uh, to uh, use some facilities well i really wasn't bothered about my cleanliness really um obviously it was amazing to have a shower whenever i did have one um the longest i ever went was without a shower was actually only four days but right from the start I sort of I accepted the fact that I was going to be absolutely disgusting and stink every day so I really yeah I was never looking actively looking for showers Right. Well, I think you've sort of brought everything to a close here. It sounds fantastic. And I'll obviously give people the link on the website to your charity page. So if people want to make a donation to the Epsom Food Bank, uh, that would, I'm sure, be very uh, greatly appreciated. Well, Hannah, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's a a wonderful thing that you've done, a very interesting thing you've done, and also for a good cause. I suppose I've got to ask the final question of you're bound to have something else up your sleeve now, because I know people like you you've always got something else you're working on (laughs) well i've had things going through my mind there is nothing definite at all but i did happen to notice that france is only 850 miles from top to bottom i know that's just another country top to bottom but that's that's mm, that's a vague possibility at the moment I'm actually next week heading off to France to au pair for six months. So we'll see what happens then. But, you know, there's always something going on. Of course, all the links to this podcast, the photographs and the link to the charity can be found over on the outdoorstation.co.uk webpage. And Hannah's charity page will be open, I believe, until the end of December 2017. And to remind you, she's raising funds for the Epson and Ewell Food Bank. And so if you feel inclined to add a few pounds after listening to her inspiring trip, I'm sure it'll all go towards a good cause for those in need at Christmas. My thanks to Hannah, who I'm sure you will agree is a bundle of positive energy to listen to. Just think of all those excuses you hear from so many young people unable to step away from the PlayStation. Hannah made up her mind, borrowed some kit and just got on with it. 
Hannah Simpson, we salute you. And so, until we speak to our next inspiring, self-powered guest. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. Thank you.